Hello, you chili chinchilas. Oh, good one. Yeah, I like that one. Was that off the cuff? Yeah, I literally just thought about it and said it. Proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. Ian Bo. Ian Kaplan. And we're here today in our first installment of our monthly book club review. This is the first episode that we do this, and I'm, I'm excited. It's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. I actually tried to start a book club for hybrid members, and we got up to like 3,000 members or something like that. No? Yeah, just by posting yeah. it like once. Yeah, but, but the problem was that people didn't participate. Right. So I did not like that. Very well, some much. did. There was a core yeah. group. But it would have been nice to have. There were five people that participated. It would have been nice to have 3,000. They also kept picking books that I already read. But you've read every (laughs) book, so you're not giving them (laughs) much to work with. Is that my problem? Yeah. You read too many books. Right. So, all right. So, today, first uh, book review, uh, Hybrid Limited book review. So, I guess, you know, I, I didn't really give you guys a heads up to read it. So <laughs> I apologize about that in advance, but you know, maybe after the book review, then maybe you're going to be interested about the points that we brought up and maybe you'll read it. I always say that, you know, Blinkist and book summaries are great because at least they give you an idea of what the book is about. But honestly, I think that you have to read the whole thing to really think about what the book is about and, and the different types of stories that they bring up and the examples. Well, that's the, that's the benefit. I well, for me, at least I think when you actually read a book, they give you example after example, after example to illustrate the point. But each example gives you a different perspective. Yeah, no, I'm for it. Okay. I'm saying there is a, there's a point to it. Whereas when you just read the summary, they tell you, tell you like the bare bones of something and then you have to sort of try to apply that to examples you make up yourself. Whereas when they provide the examples, usually they're they do a variety of them and you can relate at least to one of the, the examples they bring up. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Go Strong Equipment. As you mentioned in the last podcast, gyms are opening back up all over the world. And some of you might have realized that you actually like training at home better. Or maybe you just don't want to make a, a trip into the gym five times a week and you want to get half your, your workouts done at home. If that's the case. That's the move. We, we know the people. We know the people to, uh, to hook you up. That is the move. That's what we're going to be doing. Yeah. We're getting ghosts to make us uh, some some equipment for our, our home gym here so we can do some training here at the Beef Castle and some at uh, Hybrid HQ. Right. And, so, and hey, hey, let's play this scenario. So now you got your ghost run equipment rack and your ghost run equipment bench. Maybe you got a Fuseler bench. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. And now what do you do? You don't have, you know, you, you, what, what are you going to do for training? You're going to sign up for high performance method training. Most likely. Exactly. I, I, I would hope so. Highperformancemethod.com, your one-stop shop for all things training. Very nice. Catch Go Strong at Go Strong Equipment on Instagram and www.gostrongequipment.com. Anyway, so let's get this this show on the road. Today we are reviewing the book Originals by Adam Grant. Personally, it's been one of my one of the best books that I've read in the last little while. I loved it and I really felt like I could relate to a lot of what was said in the book. Cappy actually said that the book reminded Reminded you a lot of me. I was like, yeah, when, like we first met very early on. I think I mentioned it. Yeah. I, yeah. I was also going to say you probably liked it because it's basically an autobiography. <laughs> basically. Of you or a biography of you. Yeah. It just, it, it really made me understand myself better, honestly, and yeah. why I do certain things the way that I do in very unconventional ways. Um, but anyway, the book originals by Adam Grant is 
about the major breakthroughs in the world and how they're made by people that think differently. So basically throughout the book, they use many real life stories and different examples about how original people succeed and fail. Grant shows that creativity essentially is something that can be nurtured. And he explains how each of us can think originally and improve our chances of innovating successfully to make a bigger and greater impact. Um, and I mean, being original is about taking the less traveled path to pursue a fresh idea and improvement even if they con conflict with prevailing norms. And it involves one, having a novel concept and two, taking action and initiative to make it a reality. Um, so we're gonna be touching different key points that I actually outlined on my, on a, on a, my notes that I found the most interesting about the book. I've never done a book review, so this is also a learning experience for me. First, I think it's important to go through the concept about what original means. And in the book, Adam explains that original means the origin or source of something from where something springs, springs, proceeds, or is derived. It's a person who is unique, different, a person of freshness, initiative, or inventive capacity. I think the first thing that I think about, you know, when I think about original concepts or people who've gone to change the world is... Initially, I thought that they were kind of different or, or, or genetically blessed with superior IQ. They're smarter. They're more capable. Like me. <laughs> yeah, like you. You know, that, that's the first thing I, I think about. Also that they self-identify as original and that they can identify what makes them original and that other people see it in them. And it's like, okay, so... Why would you read a book called Originals if you think you know what it means to be original? And the thesis of the book is that we're actually pretty bad at figuring out what originality looks like and, and how it manifests in people. Or when you have an innovative yeah. idea or a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, most of the people who actually go on to change the world aren't necessarily the smartest or the most gifted ones. And this is one of the parts that I felt the most identified with. Usually those those people who go on to change the world and who are creative are usually the, the, the people who the teacher would identify as troublesome. Like tro troublemakers in class. Yeah. Like rebels and troublemakers. And people who are bored with standard curriculum. <laughs> so they're just thinking of, of ways to create something new. It's yeah. like cap in uh, chiropractic school. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and that gets into his, his previous book, which you wouldn't need to read to talk this. There's in give and take, there's givers and takers, but there's also agreeable and disagreeable people. And they're not the same people. So you actually have a two by two of like agreeable givers, which everyone thinks are givers and disagreeable takers. But there are disagreeable givers. So people who will like get in like? a fight to do what's right. Oh, they're like, so like the main character in house is, is his disagreeable giver. I see. Like he will do whatever it takes and, and walk through whatever wall he needs to, to, to do the right thing. And those are the people that What's tend an, to generate. What's an agreeable taker? Yeah. Agreeable takers are Canadians. Yeah. True. <laughs> I always say that, that people mistake. And they're the, they're, they kiss up and kick down is what Adam Grant says. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I always say that the Canadians are, people think that they're nice, but they confuse niceness with politeness. Yeah. It's very different, right? Like. So I'll pose you a situation. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's enjoyable for people. Yeah. All right. So an American, 
two Americans walking by each other. They bump into each other, mm-hmm. regardless of whoever's fault it is. They're both kind of like in their head. They're thinking, like, watch where you're going, man. You know, mm-hmm. two Canadians bump into each other. They're both going to say sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but then they're going to walk past each other and be like, what the hell is that guy's problem? <laughs> you know, like they're still just as annoyed. It's yeah. just on surface level. They'll like, you'll always be pleasant. Right. So, but yeah, yeah, yeah but so, well, the, so the Canadians are, so are disagreeable or agreeable takers. Agreeable takers. Yeah. yeah. But so the disagreeable giver is the person who has potential to be original, but they're also going to get in trouble a lot. I see. No, that makes sense. Right. So disagreeableness is not a sign that you're selfish or that you are somehow like not fit to be a leader right. or an idea generator. It just means you're disagreeable. And that actually is an advantage in a lot of situations. Yeah, like they challenge yeah, the status quo. Yeah, they're not afraid to to be the consensus breaker or the or the person who's sure. not afraid to say the Voicing right thing. Voicing their ideas. Yeah, they're not afraid to pipe and their up. Their thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that is one thing. So it's not like uh, creators or creative people or originals or innovators are necessarily genetically gifted or smarter. It's just that they're like like Ian saying they're. You know, they don't care to speak up and say what they actually think. And I thought this was interesting. So the word entrepreneur, as it was coined by Richard Cantillon, means bearer of risk. So I do think that I want to get into this conversation. It's important to debunk the myth that originality requires extreme risk taking and that originals are far more ordinary than we realize. They actually prefer to avoid risk. So the two examples that I want to talk about are one, Warby Parker how it was invented and to uh, Bill Gates. So for Bill Gates, a lot of people talk about him as, uh, or about his story. And they love the part of the story where they say that he was a college dropout. And that's how, you know, he, he dropped out of college like a hero and he went on to pursue his dreams and whatnot. Well, that's because it makes him the champion for <laughs> every single Bomb, bomb who's ever dropped, dropped out, out of college. <laughs> yeah. When in reality, he asked for a leap of absence. You Le- know, a leave. leave. I think you said a leap. What did I say? A leap, leap of ab- absence. <laughs> a leap of absence. I mean, it's a leap of faith on the leap, leap of, of faith. Yeah. Leave of faith. <laughs> leave of life. What? Anyway, so he, it was a calculated risk. You know, he, and, and he, he wanted, and he also, he took a leave of absence from Harvard, right? Was it Harvard? Yeah, it was at Harvard to start a multi-billion-dollar corporation. And he was also already an upperclassman. He had already started the business with Paul Allen. He was already basically running the business and had clients and had a lot of income coming in. But check that out. (laughs) Even then, he was like, "Hey, even you know, maybe this is not going to work out. So I'm just going to make sure that the opportunity is still there for me to come back to school and finish my degree. If this doesn't work out, imagine. Mm -hmm. Even though everything was in, you know, everything was in his favor already." And then the other one's Warby Parker. I honestly love that story. And Adam opens with this this story in his book because he was actually offered stock in Warby Parker. So for those of you who don't know, Warby Parker makes uh, reading glasses. And he he was their professor, right? Yeah, he was a professor. The guys who started Warby Parker. Yeah. Uh, They make eyeglasses, reading glasses. And at the time when they started their company, there was no other online eyeglass supplier. And... It was they so they what they wanted to do was they wanted to sell glasses online without essentially without people trying them on. And initially, when when they brought up that idea, people just didn't understand it at all. They thought, how are people going to buy eyeglasses without trying them on? That's crazy. No one's going to going to want to do that. Everyone wants to go to the store. And at that time, 
So apparently there's a monopoly on eyeglasses. Yeah. yeah. Luxottica, what is there, it called? Yeah, it's called Luxottica. People don't realize yeah. that like your Ray-Bans and your Chanel's and whatever are, other glasses. All come from the and same And the ones place. you get at the gas station. Yeah, are all, <laughs> look, well, are all Luxottica and there's no reason why they should cost $500. Mm -hmm. right. they, they cost, you know, less than $10 to mm -hmm. produce. There's actually a great <laughs> episode of uh, Adam Ruins Everything. On that. About glasses? About Luxottica. Luxottica. Yeah. What you wanted to um, share on another tangent? Or they just established uh, a You wanted to share another tangent or? No, but for our listeners who yeah. want to like uh, hear okay. more about that, I yeah. think it's a, it's a, a cool piece that breaks it down in an entertaining way. Yeah. Right. And so there was an op a market opportunity to disrupt a monopoly that was just driving up the price on sunglasses for no reason. And right. be, you know, they were college students. They yeah. needed glass. They all think the four of them that started Warby Parker needed glasses. And they were like, they looked into it and, and thought, man, why am I paying, you know, four, three, four hundred dollars for a pair of glasses when it's when it costs ten dollars. Then it discovered Luxottica has a monopoly mm -hmm. over it. And then they decided to start a competitive uh, competitor company and they wanted to innovate through selling glasses online. And when they pitched it to their professor, uh, they were still in they were still in college, and I think they were in fourth year. Or yeah, in the last year, year, I think. last year of yeah. college. And um, the professor or Adam Grant thought that he didn't see the potential in the idea. He didn't think it was such a good idea. He thought that you know people it wasn't going to be well received. People want to have them on their face before they make that. So that, that was the first reason why he didn't uh, he didn't buy stock in the company, and the second reason was because he, he thought that they didn't fully believe in their idea because they weren't uh, fully committed. Like they weren't, they weren't, weren't taking a big risk. So in his eyes at that time, he said, you know, if, if this is such a great idea and if they are so confident in it, they should just drop out of school and pursue this full time. And the fact that, go ahead, Cap. Well, not only were they not dropping out of school, like there was four of them. One is like, well, why are four of you sharing the risk? And two, they all had secured jobs that they were After, going, that, that, yeah. that they were going, they had no plans on quitting until the business started generating enough income that it made sense for them to leave. Right. So in, in the eyes of a, of a person who, or of an investor that makes them look like they're not fully committed to, or, or they don't fully believe in the idea they're presenting. And Adam talks about how that's been, that is what led him to uh, study originals. You know, why, what made them uh, able to succeed and what makes other people, other originals, other companies able to succeed because he thought it was one of the, mo the biggest missed opportunities in his life, essentially. So anyway, Warby Parker launched and the first month they had over 40,000 people on their waiting list. And after the first year, they were number one in Forbes. And I think they sold like a billion. They were valued at a billion dollars yeah, after, yeah. after the first year, which is just absolutely insane. Yeah, I think they were the fastest company to a billion dollar valuation at that point. Wow. Right. So essentially it, it led Adam to pose the question about why do originals play it safe instead of risking it all? You know, and... Essentially, what he explains is that he thinks that having a sense of security in one realm allows us or gives us freedom to be original in another. So essentially, you covering your bases financially or or through pursuing a degree educationally through having different opportunities. Um, in that way, we we escape the pressure of, you know, doing something half-assed, essentially. Or Yeah, and I also feel like you're, you're able to actually be creative and, uh, you know, focus on a task a lot better when you're not stressed out about keeping the lights on or putting food on your table, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. 
100%. That makes I, perfect sense to me. Yeah, he talks about the 80-20 rule, how he thinks that even someone who has a job working for someone else should dedicate 10-20% of his time to, obviously, if that's an interest of them. If, if they have a, a project in mind that they want to do, usually we're paralyzed by thinking that we don't have enough time. Mm -hmm. um, and so he encourages people to take 10, 20% of their time to pursue those ideas while having the, the job security and the financial security of a job that is there or that they already have, essentially. You know who also said this? Mm -hmm. Do you remember when we had uh, Tom and Juji? Yeah. On the podcast, yeah. that was keep your job as long as well, possible. Keep that was Tom yeah, Bo right. Tom Boyden's. Mm -hmm. Steph said, "What what's like your number one piece of advice for someone trying to start out in the fitness industry or on YouTube, social media, all that stuff?" And Tom said, uh, "To don't feel like you have to go all in on one thing. Yeah. Like there's not absolutely nothing wrong with having something that provides you a steady income while you build up another more creative business." It's also similar to the approach that I've taken with with lifting. And in athletics in general, you know, when I was playing soccer, I still wanted to go and get an, an education, a college degree, and then physical therapy school, even though I was already making money with hybrid and I was trying to get mm -hmm. better in powerlifting. I always thought, I, I always valued education just to kind of keep my options open, you know, in case you get hurt or something else mm -hmm. happens to you. The more options you have, the, the better off you'll, you'll be essentially. Yeah. To, to be a little contrarian here too, is I think there's a lot of talk about side hustles because people can pick up gigs and do whatever, you know, content generation or be a YouTuber or whatever. But also if you have a job and you have 40 hours a week in that job, you also have 80 hours a week to be really good at that job. Yeah. Right. So it depends what job you're in, but sure. You know, so you could start this other little thing and only have so much time for it and see if it works, but you can also be really good at your job. You can also, so he also, <laughs> yeah, talks, so it's a cost benefit also, analysis yeah. that you have to make. Yeah. He also talks about this, about having flexibility in the job. So you can also use that 20% of, of, of time to take initiative and, de and develop new capabilities or new skills that will make you more likely to land a promotion in your job. So he encourages employees to view their jobs as flexible and not as, as rigid as they think and encourage them to like think about new things that they can learn so that they can get a promotion and qualify themselves for a role that potentially they're better, better fitted for. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was something that we were talking about within our own business. Yeah. It's like you, you, if somebody wants a promotion, you can't just do your job. Well, you have to start doing things that make you more valuable than the job that you're doing. Exactly. Right. And also we live in a world now and, and also in an industry and in a sector that, that moves fast and the skills change, the technologies change, what people are using changes and there's a continuous learning curve that needs to be there. Right. And some, you know, firms and some industries really get that and they facilitate that. And that's really, Adam Grant is speaking as an organizational psychologist. So he goes into these companies and says, we need to change the way you view your organization. And that means encouraging these behaviors and providing you know, these rituals and rules and systems to encourage this, this sort of thing, because this is what we think the evidence is, which is right. That people, if given the time and, and the incentive to, to learn new skills and to, right. And to kind of, right. be provided the space and time to learn, right. New tools and, and new ways of, of viewing their job, then they will be more valuable to the company and also more, they would stay longer and be more rewarded and fulfilled in their career. And 
that's something that is like, it's, it becomes as in, right. If you're thinking in terms of the organization, it's not any one person's fault. It's this kind of this group behavior dynamic that emerges from large organizations that just things patterns start to, you know, emerge like people aren't predictable. And, you know, when you view them in one person, but when people in groups, you know, they, they start to exhibit the same behaviors. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do you fight the normal tendencies of people to, you know, to be complacent and to, and to form these kind of, right. These, these patterns of behavior that keep them in place rather than moving forward. But anyway, let's go back to, um, the book and where we're going with that. <laughs> Cause I got, no, I, lo- I love these little tangents. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, so moving on to the concept of, uh, actually coming up with ideas, Adam Grant explains that it's really important to come up or it's more important to come up with a bunch of ideas. So quantity over just focusing too much on coming up with a perfect idea. And he gives a couple of examples. So gives an example of a study where they divided, uh, photography students into two groups. One of them was told to take a hundred picture, a hundred great pictures. And the other was told to take one really, really good picture. And the group that took a hundred pictures had way more high quality photos or the pictures that they took were way higher quality than the photos that the group who was told to take one picture. I knew I was onto something with this. <laughs> I, oh I picked, God, I picked annoying. this. Uh, no, it's not annoying. That's right. <laughs> I picked this up just being an Instagram boyfriend. <laughs> take a lot Whenever she would tell me to take a photo, I'd just take like a hundred of them. I'm like, surely at least one of these photos will be good. But and it's not because of that. That goes. <laughs> what do you mean? I, no, no, this no, no, is no, the no, point no, no, you're no, no, trying no. to prove. That's not the point. It's a hundred decisions. It's not a yes. hundred like iterations of the yes. same decision. Also, yes. that's a decision. I have to get the right <laughs> no, moment. No, 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 no. Sorry. That's not what it's about. It's about practice. Yeah. So, you know, it came down to it. They took way more photos. Imagine to take one photo, one of the hundred photos, they likely took uh, maybe, I don't know, 10 photos for that one that counts as one that they submitted. Right. So essentially they just, I'm submitting all of my so there's photos that I took there's, of you, there's one, to you. There's one way it's similar and one way it's different. The it, way it's different is Warby Parker is another good example of testing 2000 names to get to a name that works. And that's a lot of names. Uh, right. The other way that it's similar is that it's hard for you to appraise the the value of what you just did because you're biased to thinking that me personally, yeah, that you're thinking that's good because you just did it. Well, they're all good. Um, I think all the photos either, either this and <laughs> some other place to give the example of Cirque du Soleil performers trying to rate their performance. And if they're rating their own performance, they overrate it. If they're, if their director rates it, they underrate it. But if their peers rate it, they're much better raters of each other Interesting, because they kind of know what it takes, but also not the person who performed it. And they're also not, the director who's expecting a certain level of performance or expecting or has experience and intuition about how it should be performed. Is, is that the same across males and females? Uh, I don't know. I'd be interested in that statistic. <laughs> was that from the book? Um, I don't know if that was from the book or was it another talk with all of his books blend together in my head. Yeah. Um, but that, I think it's a good example of, of, of like why you, why you need to just do a lot because you don't know which one is the right one. Right. right? You don't know which idea is the winner. And you yeah. kind of have to source that that but, knowledge from other people. Right. You might rate your idea yeah. a 10 out of 10. It's like, oh, this right. is a good right. one. I'm done. Right, right. now. Right. We actually but need also, to give people a bunch of But ideas. also who rates your ideas matters. Yeah. You need like credible people to rate your ideas. Right. But not only credible people, you need people who have walked a walk on your shoes. Like yeah. you need people. Who, so I think he, I can't remember exactly what he refers to on the, on the book, but I think he was talking about how it's important for like, if, if 
people are reviewing a script for a, for a show, they should also write a script. Yeah. Well, that was, al- that was also the, the Seinfeld part. story is that the, the person, the manager gave the green light had never, you know, produced a sitcom, but, but had produced television. Um, there's the other one, um, in, in product development, you usually give prototypes to people in your industry and not just to random consumers. Cause they're not going to have anything to say about your product mm-hmm. right. or any people to, to be able to articulate like what's working and what's not all you're going to get is ideas of problems and really no solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so there's a certain level of credibility and that goes back to the, to the Bridgewater example, which we can talk and about because Bridgewater is a really interesting case study in, in organizational dynamics. All right. If you read another book, which might be a topic for a future book club, uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. So it's called Principles. Ray Dalio is the founder and I think still CEO of Bridgewater Associates, which is a hedge fund, which is one of the best performing hedge funds ever. Them and Renaissance Technologies are the two best ones, two very different hedge funds, but, uh, Bridgewater is famous for their organizational culture. It's a very kind of, like he calls it radically transparent. They, that means that everyone knows what's going on in the company, but also everyone is rated on their ideas and almost nothing else. They, they combat groupthink and they combat this, the idea that the highest paid person's opinion is the only one that matters by one rating people on the quality of their ideas and building a score based on how, how often they're right. And their subject matter in that given field that they're talking about. What was this called again? It's called radical transparency. Right, 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 right. Um, but and they have and they have really they have their own you know proprietary software that they use to manage that, and they record everything, and they have you know there are these cultural landmarks that they use, and it's actually a very you know it's a it's not a culture for everyone. It's a very kind of competitive culture, and, and you have to you have to have a stomach for it. You have the stomach right. to be to be openly criticized by everyone in your company all the time. But the executives will do it and you're expected to do it too. Um, so you might drop out after a couple months, but that's, that's, they're okay with that. But what that means is everyone, it's ideas matter, but who, the source of the idea matters as well. And, the, and your idea is weighted based on the source, but anyone can contribute an idea, right? And cause, cause that, cause both of those things influence, you know, will likely give you a sense of how good that idea is and whether they should act on it. Because when you're a hedge fund, you're acting on ideas that could be billions of dollars in, right. in, in, in value difference. So the, everything is bet on whether these ideas are right or wrong. And, and they've had a history of being right of predicting downturns both in 2007. And actually they dumped a lot of assets that, you know, earlier this year, there was a big thing. They predicted a, a downturn in the middle of this year. They obviously couldn't predict a coronavirus, but they predicted a contraction in the market Maybe and they positioned it. themselves appropriately. And hedge funds tend to do much better because that they're, because as good hedge funds tend to do much better in, in poorly performing markets because they can outperform the market. Right. In the, the past 10 years, they've actually been not really beating the market because the market's been doing so well. So when you have a group of, of high performing people in a good organization that, that exposes those ideas, they tend to do pretty well. So, okay. So we've talked about, um, you know, idea generation from, from, uh, from a quantity standpoint, it's important. So you got to generate a bunch of ideas, but then the next hurdle, and, and I would say the biggest barrier is idea selection, Yeah. right? So how do you select the right idea? And in the book, they go through two different examples. One was Segway and one and the other one was Seinfeld that we started talking about. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so Segway, they they explained it as as a false positive because it was forecasted a hit, but it turned to be a miss. How yeah. could anyone think that was going to be a hit? I mean, they thought they were they were they were solving some sort of problem in in or some sort of issue in um, transportation. transportation. It was like the new walking. Do you, right. would do, do you want? But all the inconvenience of bringing a vehicle around you, with the slowness and like inability to carry things but that no. walking provides. So you know what's a better? It's, it's, <laughs> what's a similar solution now? It's actually performing pretty well as a bird. As any, yeah, bird scooters. scooters yeah. Um, and that's just a, it's a too early solution, right? If you can use it on your phone, it's lightweight, it's cheap, it's easily available. Well, cheap, right? And How much is a Segway? 10 yeah, grand? Yeah. That was the problem. And that, there's the same thing with Palm Pilots before iPhones. And, uh-huh. they were, and there was a, a company that was spun off from Apple that made this device that resembled an iPhone. It was just, it was $1,000 and it used your cell service. It had, didn't have internet. So like there's, there's technology solutions that are too early to a market that actually don't use the right, right combination of tools to make it easy. And they don't actually, you know, kind of, uh, they don't address, you know, they don't, they don't provide value to customer. They don't address the real customer need right? or they can't because they don't have, because they're too, they're in a solution is too early for kind of the time. You also look um, like a total weenie riding a Segway. <laughs> like if ever, the least intimidating a police officer can possibly look mm-hmm. is bicycles close, but the Segway definitely takes the cake, especially yeah. when they're wearing a helmet. Yeah. I mean, essentially what Segway did wrong is that they identified, they provided a solution to a problem that wasn't identified by people. It was identified by them. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So it's like, what, I mean, what what's the appeal of spending $5,000? For a yeah. piece of equipment that you, I mean, don't but, really need. But I think, I think the the problem there was a real problem. It just wasn't priced right. Not to yeah. right because the problem there is a transportation problem, which is what's being better addressed now by transportation services or ride sharing services. Mm-hmm. Um, right, people can't afford to own cars in cities, and they need transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, and public transportation isn't good enough. But also the darker example, which I don't remember if he addresses in the book, but just talked about in other places, is Theranos. Is that there's a real mm-hmm. Theranos is the blood test in a drop mm-hmm. in a box. Oh, the whole thing was yeah the Edison bogus. machine. Yeah, the yeah. whole thing was bogus. Yeah. But the whole culture was I am Steve Jobs. I'm pushing people to innovate. We don't have a device yet, but we will if we just tell people that they need to think big and and you know and push boundaries and think different. Right? If you just tell people that, and you don't actually have a solution or you don't have something workable, mm-hmm. and the engineers are telling you like we can't build this thing. Right, and you just say, "Oh, you're not Silicon Valley." That was supposed to be an Apple product. Um, no, it was no. no it was she based, was based off the, the oh, sorry, okay. mentality. Yeah, it's like she Steve idolized Jobs. Steve Jobs, and she's like, "I'm Steve Jobs. I'm going to disrupt healthcare. I'm going to change he, the world." Because Steve Jobs used to walk into like a boardroom and, yeah. and be like, "Hey, this is what I want in the iPhone," and then all his the yeah. experts would be like, "Oh, well, we can't. You do can't that. do that. Yeah. The technology doesn't exist." He's, and then he would be like, yeah, "I don't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make yeah, it work." Yeah, it's like you guys are idiots. Like. <laughs> It needs to be this way. It's like, oh no, we need a pen. You know, you can't use your hand. It's like, well, if you can't, you can't use your hand. You, we don't have an iPhone. It's like, right? Yeah, you know, um, but but you know what's interesting? You, you brought something up, Steph, about how they uh, they created a solution to a problem people didn't know they had. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of innovations actually work. No, in that's that how way it works too. That, that is that is every Apple innovation. That's what I was going to say. Right? <laughs> people didn't realize they didn't need buttons. Or that they didn't want buttons, but as soon as we got, you know, got rid of the keyboard and added that touch screen keyboard, people were like, oh, this is the best thing ever. I don't have to worry about things getting in the cracks and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. There's, there's, I mean, in technology, people can't imagine the technology actually solves the problems that are in front of them. So they very rarely articulate solutions to 
they, right. they, they will, they will express their, their need for a solution or they articulate a problem they're having and maybe not even a direct way, but the solutions are usually things they couldn't imagine themselves. And they usually come from a bunch of different perspectives Henry and they're, Ford, and they're arrived at very slowly. Remember the Henry Ford example? Uh, so it, no. I think it was something like Henry Ford said that if you were to ask people what they need in terms of transportation, they would have told you a, a, a faster horse. Yeah. More horses, not a buggy. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, like they would, they, didn't even going? have the 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 invent, inventive kind of capability to know that they needed a car, right? Like he invented, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a couple of things like that. I mean, that's, that's also your- like literally the entire world is built in the cloud now. And there's a story Mark Benioff went to Steve Jobs' office. And he's like, "I want you to build the cloud for me." He's like, "I have no idea what you're talking about." <laughs> and then he's like, "Oh no, you just have a distributed system of computers, and you host your software there. It's going to be great." And he's like, "Oh." Okay, and then and then Salesforce went and built something that looked like it. And it's like now I want you to build an app store on your, <laughs> on on your on your platform. And Salesforce did that. And then Steve Jobs is like, okay, now we'll, now we'll do that. Mm-hmm. And right, right, and this is this is long. Like that's kind of a, a mythical exception. But also they didn't get this app store thing right, which was driving almost all of their value too, because they were keeping it internal. They had this end to end model where like, oh no, uh-huh. we control everything on the app store. Oh, we control all the software on our platform. Or no, you need an iPhone to to. We don't want to make any of our apps compatible with any other device. Right. Right. So it all has to be written in our next, like the code I used for my weird side project when I left Apple that just tried to get me back in Apple, that next computer thing, which oh, was too yeah. expensive. Yeah, and just, yeah, a, yeah. They, they built a language for that and then they transferred it into all future Mac OSs and it's still in people's operating systems and it's on their iPhones. On current ones. Yeah. And so we, it's just that. a weird version of an old programming language that like you have to use on a Mac, but you just did that right. to, to create the sense of control. Sure. It's like, and only when you let go of that control and only when you're like, only when you realize the value that other people see in your idea, can you actually right, realize the value you know, for the world. So those ideas are hard to come by and they evolve over a long period of time. I think sometimes people mythologize Steve Jobs as like this, this visionary who saw decades into the future. He did with design and, and with, you know, architecture, a company around personal computing, but a lot of his ideas were, were crazy and didn't work. Right. You know, <laughs> right. and to go for Steph, to yeah. go back to your example with the horses, yeah, people, there was a problem that they were identifying, which was speed of transportation, but they, they just didn't have the, the vision to think of something other than the horse, which is, then you need those people, the the innovators to come in and say, there's could be a better way than adding horses to the lineup. So anyway, uh, as far as the barriers to originality, uh, okay. We talked about Segway being a false positive was forecasted to be a hit, but it wasn't. And then Seinfeld is the, the opposite example. It's a false negative because it was expected to fail, but it's the most profitable and successful show uh, of all time. Not bad. Hmm. Not bad. Some would say we're fans. Yeah. And to quote what they said in the book about Seinfeld, the focus group that evaluated Seinfeld was focused not on the cost of investing in a bad idea, wasn't, was focused not on the cost, cost of inventing in a, investing in a bad idea rather than the benefits of piloting good ones, which led to a false negative. I don't right. know why that was so hard for me to read. It's okay. We got through it. Yeah. But, um, did, what was it? Uh, what I found interesting actually about that part, um, was that focus, they were talking about how focus groups are actually really bad at determining like the efficacy of an idea because, uh, they're, they're, they're basing their decision-making off of criteria that you set for them. 
right? Like they're trying to be critical of a show Mm -hmm. instead of just like, when I watch a show, I'm not like, is the cinematography good? Did the timing of this work? Like, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just watching the show. Did, was I entertained or was I not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then that's how I evaluate the show. That was also their thing. It was that it broke rules and and comedy, but it was funny. And all that really mattered was that it was funny. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, if you, it's almost like if you, if you force people to be too close to it and, and look at it in too much of a, like a, a micro way, mm. instead of just taking a step back and seeing the whole thing, then it's. Yeah. But I think, I think he meant, he made the, the point that people with like a medium level of exposure and experience, they kind of know the basic rules and how and they can't just have no context mm-hmm. for how to yeah, build something. Some right. Well, that's why yeah. the guy who championed the show was, yeah. uh, yeah. You know, he had been involved. He never created a sitcom, but he was involved with in TV. Yeah. And I think it's a classic being fooled by your experience that you think the past will look like the future. Right. Um, And that's a that's a right. Another classic problem is why why you can't imagine a future that's different. The more past you accumulate, the harder it is to imagine something different might happen Mm -hmm. in the future. And the more you're likely to accept, oh, we will do it this way because it has always been done this way. Yeah. Uh, A a successful (laughs) show looks like X. Yeah. And there's also there's a lot of structural influences like you're not fired for for cancel for cutting a show that might succeed you're fired for investing in a flop right right there's there's asymmetric risk right no one's ever going to know if you if you shut down the show that was going to be the biggest show of all time right unless they take it to another network and then it crushes and that's the saying nobody gets fired for for you you know for buying ibm Mm -hmm. right they buy enterprise software and they don't look at anything else and nobody nobody cares um Man, do you imagine how different your life would have been if if Seinfeld wouldn't have been aired? What kind of references would I be making all the time? None. I would have found another you show. You would have been so boring. Oh man, what if what if I accidentally you would have been what if I accidentally Simpsons references or like everybody loves Raymond? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't be the same guy. You would not. You would be totally different, Hayden. I know. Well, wow. yeah. hey, it all worked but out. You're I welcome. also like. I don't know if we're gonna get to this, but I I like the <laughs> idea that originals aren't always the first to market. Procrastination, or like, but they don't—they're not like—they're not the first ones in an industry, or they don't come with this wildly different idea. They improve upon an existing idea, yeah. mm-hmm. which I think we've got into that in a basic sense. But also, I like to think of it as like, right? There's a, there is no, um, right? The the idea that there's like a first movers advantage in, in in business, and in some ways in life is is kind of a myth. I always think of it as there's actually a last movers advantage, like, or the last, the, the last, the only way right. you predict success is if you're still doing it when everyone else has failed, not if you were doing it before everyone else. Right. It's like, you know. uh, I, what was the example they used? Was it the Motorola versus the iPhone? Uh, uh, well, iPhone was second. I mean, in, uh, Intel and, and Motorola was a processing war that Intel won. Um, Amazon wasn't the first online retailer obviously uh-huh. was a big example, but they were the first in cloud computing and they're still a big, you know, leader in that. Um, but right. There's just a lot of examples of, there's a lot of examples of first movers that go out of business. Right. right. And Microsoft, yeah, you, Microsoft has built, some, you know, almost a trillion dollar business on not being a first mover. We always you know? think that, that as soon as we have an idea, yeah. we have to implement it before other people do. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. someone else has an idea that you don't have anything original anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love what he said. The early bird catches the worm, but the early worm also gets eaten. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, so that's good. Like I like one. that. Yeah. Yeah. And that also goes to those ideas that are too soon. Uh-huh. That if you if if the Segway had waited ten years and made it a ride sharing service and made it, you know, twenty cents a ride. Right. You know, it might be a different company. 
So he talks. So now that we're talking about timing and procrastination, he talks about procrastination, and or I think he gives it a term, strategic procrastination. Mm -hmm. And he gives a few examples about people who've who've obviously done it successfully, like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Mm -hmm. his his dream or his I had a dream speech. So they talk about how he didn't begin writing his speech until 10 p.m. the night before. And it was supposed to be a short speech. And they say that the shorter the speech, the longer the preparation needs to be because you got to pick your words carefully. And, you know, he waited until 10 p.m. the night before. I think his speech was early in the morning. And he ended up delivering the best speech of his life, which, you know. I just want what what was this? um, I hope you know who said this quote. It was somebody who wrote a letter and they said, like, excuse the length of this letter. I didn't have time to make it shorter. Yeah. Do you remember that quote? I love that one. I can't remember who said it. No, but it's but the same I've, sort of idea. It, yeah, I've heard you say. But anyway, so the point he's trying to make is that strategic procrastination forces us to improvise, mm-hmm. essentially. So I think that also, I think that comes from his experience writing his first book, which was Give and Take. So this is like his second or third book. Um, or this is his first book a, a year or two after getting tenure at Penn and Wharton. Um, I think he was the youngest professor ever to get tenure at Wharton. He was was in his late twenties. Um, but he wrote this book over the summer, give and take, I wrote a hundred thousand words, like spent every morning writing over the summer, realized at the end of it, that it was just a really long research paper that nobody would read. (laughs) And, and, and his book contract was due in like two months. So he scrapped the entire thing and wrote it again Wow. on a, you know, on a much more aggressive timeline. And that's the book that became a best, you know, New York times bestseller. Wow. Blaise, uh, yeah. Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal. Pascal. Yeah. So anyway, procrastination essentially has two meanings. One is laziness and the other one is waiting for the right time. And what Adam Grant says is you cannot produce a work of genius controlled by a schedule which I love. And he also says procrastination might be the enemy of productivity, but it's a resource for creativity. Ooh, wordsmith. Yeah. I loved it. I love that. And he also gives the example of Da Vinci in painting the Mona Lisa. So he said that he started painting the Mona Lisa in 1505 and didn't finish it until 1519. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Also, sorry, it's not strategic procrastination. It's Calculated procrastination. And he, and he said that that may have given uh, Da Vinci the opportunity to go experiment with other styles and learn new techniques and mm-hmm. then come back and apply those to the Mona Lisa. Exactly. So he closes that chapter by saying that being original doesn't require being first. It requires thinking differently, being different and being better than everyone else. Yeah. Probably a good idea not to be first. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What else do we have here? Talking about different styles of innovation, there's conceptual innovators and experimental innovators. I don't think I want to get into that. Caesar cut this awkward silence until I find something something else. Nah, the true fans will stay with us. <laughs> They're here for the for the whole thing. So I thinking. like what what uh, so you wanted to say a point about Lion King. Oh, so there's a I, I like using animated movies as references for for creativity and and. Um, right. Organizational management, because it's one thing to film a movie with like actors. You just point the cameras and you write a story mm. to build something out of nothing. You're offending so many actors. Right. Right. Now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Hum- I get it. Humans, you know, acting is a profession and whatever. Uh, <laughs> but to build 
the same thing out of binary is 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 a much more complicated thing to do. Where you sure. have this, you have many more layers that you have to work through, and many more problems that can come up, and they do come up. Um, and now there's a lot of movies with both, but that's a different conversation. But so there's a couple things. Like it's really hard to make a good animated movie, and it takes a really well-run organization to do that. And there's two organizations that basically do that: it's Pixar and Disney. And now Disney owns Pixar, obviously, but for a while. Disney and Pixar were two different organizations. In the early 90s, they were two different organizations. And in the 90s, Disney ended like a generational drought in great animated movies with The Lion King. And the way they did that was they wanted to generate a script that wasn't based on a fairy tale. They wanted something original. And they wanted something like Bambi, but in Africa with lions. That was how they started. That was how they started it. And they're like, yeah, like this will be good. It's like Bambi. So it's not, you know, it's not a German fairy tale Uh, and it has animals. We can animate that. It'll it'll be good for kids and it'll be a good family. And they're like, well, what's the story? This this seems ridiculous and it seems dark and I don't want to, I don't want to do it. And it is a little dark. Yeah. And it was like, well, what happens to Bambi in Africa? And they're like, oh no, it's, (laughs) it's Hamlet, but with lions. Wow. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. The uncle kills the uh-huh. father, the, the son avenges the uncle. And then there'll be, a, you know, a warthog and a, and a meerkat and it'll, it'll be great. And, <laughs> Don't and forget then, Rafiki. Yeah, and it end up being and a baboon who's the mentor, who's the sage, <laughs> you know, and just won't have the sad ending. But so that's The Lion King. At the same time, Pixar is making the first, you know, 3D computer, you know, generated animated movie and hits it out of the park. This is actually Steve Jobs' other business while he's not. You know, well, he was no longer working at Apple, but they're, you know, Pixar runs this kind of series of amazing movies, Toy Story and Bugs Life and Wally. Wally's actually post the movie I'm talking about the other, but one movie they, they, they start working on is Incredibles and they hire this director, Brad Bird, who had just made the Iron Giant for Warner Brothers, which was a great movie, but it was a flop. And, and he was, was it? He I love that he movie. Was, it was basically a critically acclaimed movie that didn't that couldn't sell at the box office. So he was, so he was let go of, of Warner Brothers. I did see it on VHS. And yeah. So so but 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 Ed Catmull, who's the visionary at um, Pixar, who really started and was the technical head of it. He was you know he had he had the technical chops to build the systems that generated these movies. It was like we need to do something different. We're kind of resting on our success. We need to make sure that we're continuing to push this industry forward because every movie has all these big holes and we're always over budget. These things take forever. Um, we need to continue to be more creative. You know, there's ways that these things could be better. And if we get complacent, we'll, we'll eventually not be able to live up to our reputation. Cause that's what he was really concerned with is that they make great films right. that are built on great technology. And so they hired Brad Bird to come in and, and write this, you know, the script and produce this movie, which was novel in that it was animating people. And they previously only really animated toys and bugs because <laughs> people are very hard to animate. They look, if they look right. bad, everybody knows this and hair is, was impossible to animate at the time. Well, everybody um, knows what a human smile yeah, looks like. Yeah. If you mess that up, it just looks And creepy. I think there was a short and I think it was in bugs life. There was a short, there's like a five minute short. And this was something they would do to experiment with technology. Like there was a five minute short of a, of an old man playing chess against himself. And that was the first kind of. And people had no idea what it was, especially kids. Like, what, what is this? It had nothing to do with the movie. It was a way, it was a short piece that they used to experiment with the, technique. In the movie. I don't remember. It, it was in the, it was in the, the, the theatrical release of the movie and it was on DVD. Um, it's yeah. just in, just in the beginning, but, but that was their first attempt at, at animating people. And then they'd go in and they started animating Incredibles. 
And but they assembled this team of Brad Bird who had come off of a flop who thought his career was over. They pulled people from their organization and from other organizations who had who were like who had failures and who, you know, who thought that they were kind of out and, you know, were unhappy with the way things were working. And they said, okay, now you, you have your shot, go make your movie, you know, go prove us wrong, go, go animate hair, go do it under budget, go do it in three years. And they did it. And it was a, you know, $600 million movie. It was, it was their highest porn movie ever. And it's now this franchise. Wow. You know, so, but it was the idea of setting them as the underdog and also giving a bunch of misfits the opportunity to prove themselves and to have a common enemy, that common enemy, see another great movie, another great movie, Finding Nemo. You can learn anything you want about how to run, how to, you know, about business through making animated films in the process of making them. When's ours coming out? We need to hire 500 people, but. Okay. Yeah. Let's get back to it so we can finish and do something else. Yeah. Okay, and you know the reason why they were they were making the similarity between Lion King and Hamlet was mm-hmm. because of exposure. So whenever you have like an innovative idea, people's reaction is to or an original idea, people's immediate reaction is to discredit it, right? Like, yeah, that's never gonna work, blah blah blah. So you gotta frame ideas in a familiar context so that people can can identify mm-hmm. it with it and understand it better. Yeah. Also, and War- you have to keep talking about right. it. Warby Park, Warby Parker was Zappos, but with glasses. So let's make um, a Midsummer's Night dream with squids. Thoughts? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then next chapter, you got to rethink group think. We talk about this. You don't want a bunch sure. of like yes men around you telling you that everything you do and say is wonderful. Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. look at Cap. What do you think Cap is here? Because he read something that I said and was like, bullshit. <laughs> That's pretty much how Cap and I met each other. I tell it like it is. And I was like, I like you. And that's how uh, he got a job. <laughs> so, the, yeah, that's the formula to get a job. Yeah, call stuff out tact- in a tactful way. <laughs> or not. <laughs> so what, do you want to do a summary, basically? Oh, hold on, there's one more thing. Oh, there's one more thing? Yeah. So he closes the book with the challenges of being an original. And uh, he... Actually, I, I don't know if that's a chapter, but anyway, so he, he breaks groups or people that are original into two different groups. One is a strategic optim- strategic optimist and the other one is a defensive pessimist. Mm. Um, and I thought that was interesting because I, I actually really uh, identify myself as a defensive pessimist, but I always thought it was a bad thing. You know, right. you're more anxious, you're, you're less less confident sometimes both groups produced similar results right that was yeah. the and that also reminded me of something else i was listening to recently um it's the same concept it's also it organizes it by role is that salesmen tend to be strategic optimists and i think steve Ballmer said this who was a ceo of microsoft um prior to the previous guy um the previous guy bill gates <laughs> <laughs> his friend bill gates he now owns the clippers steve Ballmer, great public speaker if you ever listen to him speak but anyway um, he's like salesmen, salesmen are eternal optimists and they're like, we can go conquer the world. Just tell us who to sell to. And engineers are like the defensive pessimists. So like everything is broken. <laughs> like we can't do that. <laughs> you know, but he's like, you know, if you give an engineer a problem to solve, they're like, it's broken, but I can fix it. So uh-huh. that's how you turn their, right. Their realism or their pessimism, depending on how you look at it into an asset. And the salesman, you have to roll back. It was like, well, can you actually 
can you actually accomplish that? So, is, right? so there's a give and take between the salesman and the engineer, yeah, which is the same archetype. Right. So is Steve Jobs the salesman in that situation? Yeah, he has no idea what an engineer does, which, which was Steve Wozniak, right? Because <laughs> right, that was, that yeah, was yeah. all of their fighting. It was like, then Steve Jobs, when he would win against the engineers, they, he would break their things, right? The Macintosh, he took the fan out and the Macintosh would overheat all the time. He's like, the fan doesn't look right. It's too big. It's too loud. <laughs> well, it's like the machine doesn't work, you know, when you take right. the fan out. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Okay. So essentially defensive pessimists use that kind of anxiety, fear, and worry to motivate them to work harder and avoid that kind of tragic scenario. Mm-hmm. And strategic What was the other one? Strategic optimists. Mm. They usually like anticipate the best. They still, they, they remain calm. They set high expectations. I think you're more a strategic optimist. Yeah, for sure. And I'm a defensive pessimist. But Uh. honestly, like that usually, if I'm not terrified for my life before an exam or before (laughs) a competition, it, it, to me, it feels almost as if I don't care. You know, I need that fear and that worry to help me prepare better. And and that just goes back that to... That sounds so stressful. No, but it, it goes back to just finding a way to making fear your friend. You know, you don't necessarily want to eliminate fear. You need it there because it's just part of human emotion. You know, and you can use it to motivate you, like I said, motivate you to help you prepare more rigorously and, and train harder, study harder. Um, and, you know, instead of... Instead of the thing I hate the most is when people say that you're about to give a, uh, a lecture or you're about to speak to a bunch of people in class or, or, or your job in, have you ever seen when people tell you, ah, oh, you just have to stay calm, <sighs> take deep breaths, you know, that's mm-hmm. the worst to me. Why? And he actually, yeah, he gives, I wrote down this example, trying to relax, uh, is like slamming the brakes when you go, when you're going 80 miles per hour. <laughs> Rather than trying to suppress the emotion, it's easier to convert it into a different emotion, one equally intense, but that propels us to step on the gas. Like, this is for the defensive pessimist. Well, or is this people? In, I think all people just forever. Like he a, says, you should reframe fear as excitement. A Canadian snow analogy turning into oversteer. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and they, he actually references a study where reframing where they found that reframing fear is excitement actually boosts speaker average length by 30%. People will speak for longer. No, it made them speak longer and better to reframe fear as excitement. So instead of, so the other group, what they told them is was remain calm and their speech was worse and shorter. And the other group, they told them, yeah, I mean, fear is fine. Just think about just, you're really excited. You're, you're excited to go give the speech. You're excited to present. And they actually performed a lot better. Right. And that is it. Those were most, if not all of the chapters. I like the last part of the book when he kind of brings it all together in like a, almost like a step-by-step bullet approach. You see it there? Yeah. If you want to like read through some of that. Yeah, I think um, we kind of went over the idea of questioning a default. Obviously, there's some things that individuals can do that just are the essence of originality. They're kind of self-evident, like, you know, immerse yourself in a new domain so you can learn it. Triple the number of ideas you generate, right? Like quality is a function of quantity. I think we, you know, he talks about, you know, championing original ideas or evangelizing your ideas, especially in an organization if you need to convince other people, which means... Right, balancing your risk portfolio, which is what we talked about. I think investors tend to like that sense that they take risk strategically. 
um, make your ideas more familiar, which is, means relate to something people know, um, speak to a different audience, um, and be a tempered radical. So it's right. Trojan horse, your radical ideas and more agreeable ideas. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then he gets into the emotion stuff. We just got to talk about and also the for leadership if you're if you want to inspire people to innovate then you got to picture yourself as the enemy oh there's a good exercise called kill the company okay um which is it's hard to get people out of out of this kind of self-protective mindset but if so if you frame the a question like what would you what, what would you do to save the company they're like well what we're doing and okay. the, but you said if you tell them what would you do to kill the comp- if you imagine your your biggest competitor what would you do to kill yourself mm-hmm. right how would you put yourself out of business then people tend to generate very interesting answers and then they need to make decisions based on those answers right <laughs> like for example like I would if our blockbuster I would sell DVDs over the mail and eventually build the streaming service where they never had to go to the store to rent a movie. Right. Well, Blockbuster had imagine that they would have bought Netflix when Netflix was for sale for fifty million dollars. Right. Yeah. Oops. Uh, <laughs> so that that's that's a really good example, and I think that applies in other areas. Is like, well, if if I were my competition, what would I be doing to me, or or to get or to beat me? Uh, and that's the biggest one from that one. And there's some parent teacher stuff. I don't know if you want to get into that. Right, emphasizing values over rules. Like people generally don't like rules. I think that's the, the gist of it all. Yeah. I think we covered it pretty well. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think uh, that's it. Thank you everybody for for tuning in and listening. Uh, next next week next month. Yeah. 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 What's the book for next month? Next month is Range by David Epstein. Mm-hmm. Um it's about why uh, I think the subtitle is why generalist triumph. I gotta pull it up. <laughs> I forgot the subtitle. What's it called? Uh, range. Okay, Range by David Epstein. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love it if you guys are gonna be participating in the book club. If you could tag us on your stories reading the book uh, that we're choosing at Hybrid Unlimited, and then hashtag Hybrid Book Club. That'd be really cool to see, you know, where you guys are at and, uh, you know, if you're enjoying it and encourage your friends to, to join book clubs are fun, man. I like it. You know, you can have a conversation with your friends. I'll, I'll bring different guests to re- to review the book and, uh, it's going to be a good time. Maybe one day we can get authors on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we did get James Clear for, yeah, uh, I was going Atomic Habits. Habits. I oh. tried to get Simon Sinek. Yeah. Well, that's going to be hard. You know. Simon, if you're listening to this. <laughs> It'll also be hard to get David Epstein, but hey, it doesn't matter. We, we can do dream. Him. We have yeah. the power and the technology. We'll figure it out. All right. All right. Everybody, thank you for listening. Um, Did you find what you were going to say? No, that was it. That I was mean, it. we can say the subtitle. I mean, you'll, you'll search range on Amazon and you'll get why generalist triumph in a specialized world. So it also applies if, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're mostly into powerlifting or training, it's there's something that applies to you because it's, you know, there's a lot of high performers in, in this book and talking about athletic performance, but it also expands beyond that into other areas of life. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge sports component to it. So it should be interesting. 
Okay, cool. So I hope you guys read the book and uh, we'll review it at the end of June. Uh, I hope to see all of you guys, you know, participating, tagging us and reading your 10 pages a day. That should be enough to finish the whole book, right? What is it? 300 pages or so? Yes, yeah. So, yeah. So you got 30 you go. days, 10 pages a day. Is that 300? 10 times 30? I yeah. hope so. I think so. I thought you are a doctor. <laughs> Not of math. No. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in. Catch you guys next time. See ya.